I'm sure you'd all agree with me that the music of this choir of Peter and Lisa and the chancel choir is truly a gift from God to this church. On Sunday, December the 5th, there's going to be a Christmas concert that this chancel choir will be performing. And if you would like to be a part of this choir, they're starting choir rehearsals this Thursday night at 7.30 here in the sanctuary with Peter and Lisa and the choir. If you'd like to be a part of that, if you're fully vaccinated, please come to the rehearsals, get ready, and sing in the Christmas concert. I know that singing in this choir is really a spiritual experience for all who do it. So you're invited Thursday night, 7.30, here to the sanctuary to be a part of this choir. As you know, I think many of us are, are aware that we're in the middle of a sermon series titled, Jesus is the Question. And what we learned by a book from Martin Copenhaver that many of us are reading during this time, and all of us have, been, have had this book sent to us, Jesus is more of a question asker than a question answerer. The questions today have to do with worry, five rhetorical questions about worry. And as I read the scripture, as I've studied it these past few weeks and months, I'm aware again that these really are mental health verses. If we took these words seriously and really believed them and made them a part of our life, we would be able to find the antidote to worry. Listen for the word of God. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life, And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we come to you as a worrying people. We worry about so many things. Today, may we learn the antidote to worry and how you want us to live. To that end, pour through me the gift of preaching that these words might really not only strike a chord deep within every one of us, but might make every one of us take the next step, the next step on our journey of faith with you. All this we pray with anticipation in the strong name of our risen, reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. With a clock read, 1.37 a.m. And Bill still couldn't sleep. I've known Bill for over 20 years, and I know he's really been an emotional wreck in this time. 
He tried in every way he could to go to sleep. He changed his position. He changed his pillows. He changed the blankets and the sheets. And he took a sleeping pill. And he tried in every way he could to get to sleep. And sleep just eluded him. He's worrying about Bridget. Bridget is Bill's 35-year-old daughter. Or I probably should have said Bill was. Bridget was Bill's 35-year-old daughter. On a hiking trip to Montana, one of her favorite spots in all the world, she slipped and fell 150 feet to her death. And these questions keep flooding Bill's mind. He can't get away from the questions. Did she die instantly on impact? Did she linger? Was she conscious? Was she alive but unconscious? Did she cry for help? What were her last seconds and last moments like? And, and maybe the most terrifying question of all, she'd been through a very bad series of relationships, emotional ones, romantic ones, and she'd just gone through a very sad, debilitating divorce. Did that cause this slip and fall did she want to fall? Did she take her life? Bill can't get the questions out of his mind, so he's awake at 1.37 a.m. Have you ever been awake at 1.37 a.m.? Has there ever been a time in your life you're worrying? And what are you worrying about? Unless I miss my guess, there's somebody here today or watching at home who would say that they're still like Bill trying to get over the loss of a loved one, and it's not easy. And if you've lost your sibling, or your spouse, or your parents, or your best friend, or a child, you know that trying to get over the grief of losing a loved one is one of the hardest things in life. And unless I miss my guess, there's a high school kid maybe watching, maybe paying a little bit of attention to the screen, or, or looking a little bit today wondering, where am I going to go to college, and where do I apply, and what if I don't get in, and trying to think about your future, and, and your dating life, and your romantic life when you're in high school or college, and unless I miss my guess, there's a business person here who's got a deal that is almost closed, and if this deal comes through, it's going to be a good deal for you, but, but you can't seem to close the deal, and Unless I miss my guess, there's somebody in an office and things aren't going well and you know you've got to fire somebody, you've got to tell them maybe even tomorrow that you're going to let them go. And that's one of the hardest things to do because you worry about them and you worry about their family and you worry what people are going to think. And unless I miss my guess, there's somebody here who's worried about what other people think of them. And maybe in a fit of anger one day or rage or resentment or bitterness, you said something to somebody that you deeply regret, but you can't take the word back. And unless I miss my guess, there's somebody who's done something you wish you'd never done, and it's totally complicated your life, but you can't go back and have a do-over. What are you worried about? So when Jesus says, do not worry, the word that he used there is merimnen, and merimnen literally means to choke or to strangle. It's the kind of worry that not only keeps you awake at night, it's the kind of worry that's like you're frozen, and you're paralyzed, you can't even move, or the kind of worry where you're in quicksand, you're sinking, and you can't think of any way out. It's that kind of worry. Jesus is saying, don't let worry become your life. The American Medical Association says that worry is debilitating. Worry actually takes a toll on our health. 
The AMA tells us that strokes and ulcers and heart attacks and cirrhosis of the liver even sometimes comes from worrying. And what's interesting is sociologists say that 86% of all the things we worry about never come to pass. And yet we worry about them nevertheless. In this brilliant text for today, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us the antidote to worry. And it's actually very simple. The antidote to worry, Jesus says, is trust in God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a relationship with God. And all these other things you worry about will be yours as well. But it's one thing to talk about trusting in God. It's quite another matter to do it. It's one thing to say you're going to trust in God. It's another thing to really put your weight down on God. So this morning, I think Jesus wants to give us three spiritual principles that will help us to discover the antidote to worry, to put our trust in God. Principle number one, Jesus wants us to trust in God because God's the sovereign Lord, the architect, the designer of the universe. God has actually designed a system that works for our well-being in the universe. So he says, don't worry about, for example, what you're going to eat. Consider the birds of the air. They neither toil nor spin nor, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then Jesus asks one of these rhetorical questions. Are you not of more value than they? So Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. It's like all the food they need is right around them. It's like they're living in the aisle of a Ralph supermarket. And they've got insects and bugs and worms and little berries all at their fingertips. And they're right there for them. So if God can provide that for them, and they don't need to go to Costco and store up in big barns, they don't have to do that. All that they need is right at their fingertips. If God does that for the birds of the air, how much more will God do for you, O people of little faith? And God says, look at the lilies of the field. They are the most beautiful creatures. They look like they just stepped out of a Vogue catalog or, or a Ralph Lauren catalog. They're absolutely beautifully clothed. Even Solomon in all his glory was narrated like one of these. But here's the thing about the lilies of the field. They usually lived in that day in Palestine only one day or two days. And then they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. But they have this glory of the clothing. Now, if God clothes them, why are you worried about clothing? You're the crown of God's creation. And then another rhetorical question Jesus asks is, and what about your life? Who can add one hour to your span of life? Don't worry about how long you're going to live. Some people live 20 years, some 40 years, some 60, some 80, some 100. We don't know how long we're going to live. And we can't add to our length of our life by worrying about it. So Jesus is really saying, I see ahead. I know what you need ahead of time, and I will provide. Now, that word provide is an interesting word. It's also the word for providence. It literally means to see ahead, providere, to see ahead, providence. Providentially, God sees what we need ahead of time, and God provides for us in the system of the universe where everything Every little worm, every little berry, every little bug has a purpose, and we have a purpose. We're in this great system of God where we get our clothing and our food and this, all this purpose and industry and work and feel good about ourselves from accomplishing something. It's all in God's grand system, and God created this ahead of time for us. Now, I saw the providence of God, how God works ahead of time in the life of our son, Ryan. 
Our oldest son, Ryan, is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and he was on the Navy crew team, and he and his crew buddies were driving to Georgia for spring break to row crew and practice crew. Ryan had dated girls in high school and college, but he was never serious about anybody, and, and he was driving with these crew guys down Highway 85 to Georgia, and then they had their crew practice, and they were driving home back to Annapolis, Maryland, and a group of girls from Penn State were in another car, and uh, they saw Ryan's Navy license plate, United States Naval Academy, and one of the girls said, gosh, my brother goes to the Naval Academy, so she writes on a little piece of paper, they put it in the window as they roar by the Navy guys, go Navy, beat Army, and that got the Navy guys' attention, so they go up beside these girls in the Penn State car, and they roll down their windows, and they're talking from car to car that, that this Katie Ferris said, my brother goes to the Naval Academy, and Ryan said, gosh, I know your brother, he's in my company. Now, they're concentrating on the road the whole way, but they're still talking, you know, back and forth in the car, and then finally the guys say, we're going to stop for lunch. They say, great, we're going to stop for lunch with you. They throw the Frisbee, they have lunch, and then the guy said, you know, what if half the guys get in the girls' car, and half the girls get in the guy's car and we got, we're going to be going four or five hours together and so they did that and they got in each other's cars and during the drive up they got to know one another and Ryan and the woman he married Holly were not in the same car but when Katie Ferris this Todd Ferris's brother got out of the car she said to Holly her best friend boy that Ryan tool I met Ryan and what a great guy he is you know his dad's a minister and when he listens to you he really gives you his undivided attention so Holly calls the crew house and gets hold of Ryan and talks to Ryan after this meeting and they start to get to know one another and she says are you going to follow in your father's footsteps and he said oh do you mean am I going to be a minister and he said no I'm not going to be a minister she said no that's not what I mean I mean are you going to be a follower of Jesus Christ and Ryan said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And they started to talk, and they dated. He invited her to a dance. They fell in love. And over a several-year period, they fell in love, and they got engaged to be married. So when Suzanne and I sent out a rehearsal dinner invitations, we said this on the invitation to everybody in the wedding. By the grace of the divine traffic controller, Ryan and Holly met on Interstate I-85 in Georgia, you're invited to the I-85 Romance Rehearsal Dinner to avoid toll, call Suzanne Toole, Director of Highway Operations. And we gave away maps, road maps at the rehearsal dinner. We had a ball, but everybody was laughing about this. Now, I ask you the question, was that a coincidence? Or could it be that the God of the universe put this woman in Ryan's life and put Ryan in this woman's life? Could it be that there aren't coincidences as much as there are God incidents. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, said, we live our life going forward, but we only understand it looking back. And when Ryan and Holly looked back at that situation, they realized they were made for one another. And that's not they haven't had conflicts in their marriage. They've had a, a wonderful marriage, but they, it's been challenging. And yet, they were meant for one another. Do you ever lift the veil in your life and see the hand of God we trust in God because God is the designer and the architect of the universe. And sometimes God moves things around so God can take care of us, providere, and see what we need ahead of time and give it to us. Principle number two. When Jesus says trust in God, he's saying make your trust in God the number one priority of your life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So what Jesus really wants to know is, is God number one in your life? 
Or is God an addendum to your life? God created us with a God-shaped void and hole in our life that only God can fulfill. But we're a fickle people. We like to keep our options open. We're not sure what we want to put in that number one spot in our life. We're like the young man who went into the card shop to order a card for his girlfriend and and the woman he loved, and he said to the sales clerk, I really need a special card for the girl I love. And she said, I got just the card for you. So she hands him a card, and it said this, to the only girl I've ever loved. The young man said, oh, this is perfect, wonderful. I'll take six of those. Now, see, this young man wanted to keep his options open. He wasn't sure who he wanted to make number one, and we're like that. We sometimes put materialism number one. Or sexual relationships, number one. Or drugs or alcohol, number one. Or succeeding, number one. We put something else, number one. And here's the truth. No other relationship other than God can ultimately satisfy us. No amount of money. No material possession. No lifestyle can ever ultimately fulfill us. we got a God-shaped void in our life that only God can fulfill. And here's the other truth. God wants to know us. He wants you and me to give all of our worries to him, to hand them over to him and tell him about it. Suzanne and I have seven grandchildren between the ages of three and 22. We are very blessed. And we love all our grandchildren. But you know the greatest joy of being a grandparent, we love all the grandchildren, we have a relationship with them, we love all that, we value that. But for me, the greatest part of being a grandparent is watching your children be parents. And I've seen both our sons bend down when each of their children, they have three girls and four boys, when each of their children were sobbing and they came running over and they said, Daddy, I fell, or they're cut, or they're hurt, or somebody left them out, or they were injured, or their feelings were hurt, and there's crying and sobbing. And each of our boys had these big big arms and they held these kids in their arms and said, Tell Daddy all about it. Have you ever done this with a grandchild or a child and they tell you about it? Doesn't that feel good for a child to tell you something? God wants that with us. Tell daddy all about it. So when you're worried about something, tell daddy all about it. When you, when you can't sleep at night, tell daddy all about it. When you're worried about something in your life, tell daddy all about it. And let me also say, there may be someone here today or listening to this message who feels far away from God now who feels different, distant from God. Can I ask you this question tenderly? Guess who moved? In other words, if you feel far away from God, God didn't pull back from us. We pull back from God. God loves us enough to let us go, but God wants to love us. Tell Daddy all about it. God wants to know the desires of your heart. So instead of keeping it to yourself, Instead of brooding about it, worrying about it, losing sleep over it, can you tell daddy about it? And is there anybody who needs to send a card to God today to the only God I ever loved and really mean it? Principle number three, putting our trust in God involves letting go of control. I say this also as lovingly as I can. Control is an illusion. If we think we are in control of our lives, think again. Only God is sovereign. We are not. 
Because if you think about it, all of our life is one series of letting go after another series of letting go after another series of letting go. We've got to let go of our childhood. We've got to let go of our youth. We've got to let go of our high school. We let go of our college. People move. We've got to let go of friends. Then we let go of freedom when we get married, and we let go of more freedom when we have children. And then our children start to pull away from us, and we want to keep them close. They're little, and we want them to need us, but soon they, they don't need us as much anymore. We've got to let them go. And then our grandparents die. We've got to let them go. And our parents die. We've got to let them go. And then a sibling dies, and we've got to let them go. And, and then we die. And we've got to let our body go. We've got to get our life go. But through all of it, these series of letting goes, we can put our trust in God. And when you hear this anthem in just a moment, the choirs of the ensemble is going to sing, they talk about flying away. It's when we get to heaven, actually, we will fly, we will fly into the arms of a God who loves us more than we love ourselves. We can trust God through all the letting goes of life. But we can't hang on to life. We've got to let it go. I love the story of the mother eagle who loves her little eagle babies. And she makes a warm nest for them with twigs and branches and leaves, and it's a nice warm nest. And every night she provides food for them, and then she covers it over with their wing over, their, over the, the, the nest. And then the little baby eagles finally are starting to learn things, that lessons she's teaching them. And every day she goes out and gets them worms and bugs and berries and good things to eat. And they eat and they're full. And they love the comfort and the safety and the joy and the warmth of this nest. But the mother eagle loves those baby eagles enough that she doesn't let them stay in the nest. There comes a time when she takes them to the edge of the nest and puts them on the edge, and the little baby eagle is looking at the mother. The mother takes back her wing, and the baby eagle says, oh, mother, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. But she does, and she bats them off the nest, and they start to fall toward the earth, and the mother eagle dives underneath them. She catches them and brings them right back, and they say, shoo, that was close. And then she puts them on the edge again. She bats them off again, and they go down. She swoops underneath and catches them again, brings them back to the edge, and a third time she bats them off, and they're really now worried about their mother. They're getting angry at their mother. And the mother's batted them off, but this time, instead of falling to the ground or getting close to the ground, and the mother, the eagle swooping them up, they discover those little appendages on their sides have a purpose. Those things are wings, and they start to use them, and they fly. And eagles, as you know, do not fly, actually. They mount. They soar, they ride the thermal currents of the wind, and they ride the wind, and they go higher than these creatures, and it's amazing the height they get and the depth they get, and these eagles discover why they're on the face of the earth, but if the mother eagle had let them stay in the nest, they would never have learned this valuable lesson of why they were put on the face of the earth, to soar and to mount and to glorify God in their flying and their soaring. The mother eagle loved them enough to kick them out of the nest. Have you ever realized that sometimes God loves us enough to push us, maybe kick us, maybe bat us out of the nest? And sometimes it's not until we have to learn spiritual lessons that we learn to put our trust in God and we learn to soar and ride the waves of God's spirit and learn to put our trust in God so everything in God's economy has a purpose. In God's economy, nothing is wasted. Our disappointments, our sufferings, our losses, our discouragement, 
Anything that happens to us is for what God wants to have happen through us to help other people. It's an amazing mystery. But these are classrooms, these lessons, these suffering, this spirituality, this waiting. These are classrooms in which we learn to trust God. So I close with a question. If my friend Bill could come to you and to me and say, I want to learn this antidote to worry. I want to learn how I can sleep through the night. What would you tell him? If he asked me, I would take a deep breath, say my prayers, look him in the eye. I like to be with him in person. And then I would say, Bill, thank God that you had a daughter for 35 years. You'll always be Bridget's dad. She'll always be your daughter. So thank God that God gave you this girl, this woman, for 35 years. That's the first thing. But man, you got to let her go. The only thing, you can't worry about her. You can't worry about how she died because it's not going to matter. It's not going to bring her back. You have got to trust her to the care of God. You've got to hand her over to God. And it's not easy to do, but you've got to hand her over to God. And you've got to hand yourself over to God. And someday, I think you're going to see Bridget again in the kingdom of heaven. I believe it with all my heart. I, would, I have said this to Bill. But I said, Bill, you've got to hand her over to God, and you've got to hand yourself over to God too. And I think, Bill, if you do this, the next time the clock in your bedroom chimes 1.37 a.m., you know what you'll be doing? I think you'll be asleep. May that also be true for us.